you have your Bibles with you once more, I invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Psalms, Psalm 11. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 574. If you're a guest with us, we've been working through these few summer months in the book of Psalms. And this morning we're at Psalm 11. And I want to speak for a few minutes on this subject today. When the foundations are destroyed, Psalm 11. And this is what the Word of God says. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. What do you do? when the foundations are being destroyed. Many Christians throughout church history have asked the same fearful question that David's friends and advisors ask in this psalm. It's not only a question for David's time, it's a question for our time. What do you do? What should you do? What did David do? The title for this psalm reads to the choir master, indicating that the specific historical setting of this psalm is unknown. All that we know is that David was the author and that he wrote in a time of crisis. David was facing a national crisis that threatened to overturn the stability of the nation of Israel. All around him, the foundations of society were crumbling, and this upheaval was caused by evil men who sought to do him harm. Adding to this ordeal, the people who were loyal to David panicked, counseling him to flee and run from Jerusalem. But David remained calm and resolute, keeping his eyes on the Lord. In the hour of his crisis, David determined to trust in God in spite of his circumstances. His unshakable and unwavering faith kept him steadfast in uncertain times. Psalm 11 is David's answer to the panic that gripped his friends and the panic that grips us when the foundations of society seem to be unraveling. In those moments, God's people have a choice between flight 
and faith. And in three movements in this psalm, David teaches us to make our refuge in God and keep doing what is right. This must be the Christian's response and application to Psalm 11. For Psalm 11 is a song of strong confidence in God in the midst of unsettling times. So would you notice these three movements of Psalm 11 with me? First of all, in verses 1 through 3, we see David's crisis. And in the depths of his crisis, David's closest friends and trusted advisors were overwhelmed by the opposition. And at the end of verse 1 through verse 3, David describes the counsel that they gave him. And you'll notice that he brackets these words in parentheses. He is, or quotation marks, he is quoting the advice that he has been given. And he says, at the end of verse 1, Flee like a bird to your mountain. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, I want you to notice, first of all, that in their counsel, their counsel was driven by fear. Do you see what he says there early on? In his quotation of them, he says that they say to him, for behold. And that phrase, for behold, emphasizes the fact that David's counselors and advisors and friends are assessing the situation before them by sight and not by faith. They are surrounded by the wicked, by those people who set themselves and their whole direction of life against God. And David's advisors and friends picture the wicked as archers lurking in the shadows in the darkness with their bows bent and their arrows set ready to shoot at the upright in heart. Let me be clear what is happening in the text this morning, friends. This is not open warfare that they are describing to David. They are describing an ambush. And it is important to note that the wicked are not concerned about the ethical or moral nature of their actions or their attacks. The wicked are willing to do whatever it takes to achieve the victory that they desire. For the goal of the wicked is to destroy those who are determined to live for God. As the text says, the upright in heart. And they are determined to destroy those who would live with God before those who are following God even realize what is happening to them. Thus, the emphasis of the ambush. And in light of this impending danger, David's counselors asked the question that all of us have asked at one time or another in verse number 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? What is he talking about when he references foundations? Well, it's actually quite simple. It refers to the pillars upon which the moral social, ethical, political, and financial order of society rests. 
from the contents of Psalm 11, it at least means a time when all of the normal protections and securities for the people of God disappear. It emphasizes a time when the orderly social fabric of life is disintegrating and a society of chaos in which everyone does what is right in his own eyes is formed. And notice how they describe the crumbling foundations. They are destroyed. The very pillars that are upholding society in an orderly way are turned upside down, leading to utter chaos, destruction, and devastation. And as a result of this danger and the dismantling of society, David's friends and David's closest advisors look at him and say, David, flee like a bird to your mountain. It's as if they were saying, everything around us is collapsing into chaos and ruins, and we are in danger. And David, what else is there for us to do except flee? But there's a problem with their counsel. Do you see it? Here's the problem. They're assuming that safety and security is the most important consideration. You only respond by fleeing when all you're concerned about is your safety and your security. I say to you this morning, what about faithfulness? What about obedience? What about serving. Shouldn't those things be taken into consideration when the foundations are crumbling all around you? But in this instance, all that's on their minds is safety and security. Now to be clear, the Bible teaches that there is a place for fleeing in our lives. We are told to flee temptation as Joseph did in Genesis 39. But we are also told that it is wrong to flee from the place of duty as Nehemiah was counseled to do in Nehemiah chapter 6. And that's the temptation, friends. That's the temptation for David. It's the temptation for you. It's the temptation for your family. It's the temptation for me. The temptation to abandon God's appointed place of assignment because of evil and because of hardship and because of difficulty. And we are not alone. Even the Lord Jesus Christ was tempted to flee. In Luke chapter 13, verses 31 to 33, the Pharisees counseled Jesus to flee from Herod. And this is what the Bible records in those verses. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go tell that fox, 
Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today, and tomorrow and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. He was tempted to flee just like you and I are. But Jesus, you'll notice in the text, resisted the temptation. And you have to ask the question, how did he resist the temptation? Because Jesus knew what you and I need to know, that his life and his ministry were completely secure in the sovereign hands of his father until the appointed time of his death. And friends, this is where theology matters in your life. God is either sovereign over your life or he's not. And you are. God has either, either numbered your days before you were ever born and directed the span of your life on earth or you are in control of how many days you'll live. But you can't have both. And when you think that you're in control of the numbers of your days, and when you think you're in control of the length of your life, the most important concern for you will be your safety and your security, and you will be tempted to give in to fleeing when evil and hardship and the crumbling foundations of society take place all around you. But if God is sovereign over your life, if he does have your days numbered, then safety and security is not your primary concern. Faithfulness, serving, godliness, holiness, that's what's at the forefront of your mind. And that's what was at the, front of the forefront of Nehemiah's mind. Because when Nehemiah was counseled to flee and hide from the enemy, this is what Nehemiah said in Nehemiah chapter 6 and verse 11. Should such a man as I run away? What a great question. It's a question that every single one of us should be asking if we're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Should a woman like me run away? Should a man like me flee? Or is there a place for me to stand firm and to stand up for God and for the things of his kingdom? Christopher Ash said it this way, we must feel the force of this. We must feel the force of this text. What could the king possibly do? Nothing. Just run away. Abdicate. Abandon your post. That is the temptation. It is a powerful and persuasive one, and we need to feel its force. Every single one of us in this room needs to feel the force of this temptation to flee. He goes on. Few things demoralize us more than a sense that we are engaged in a hopeless task. We look at the statistics of church attendance, the consistent picture of a demographic in which the tide of faith is ebbing away as believers get older and fewer young people trust Christ as Lord. And if we face this honestly, it is deeply discouraging. What is the point of getting out of bed in the morning if I am doomed to failure? What can you and I possibly do in the work of God's kingdom that can succeed against this overwhelming stream of so-called progress that undermines the foundations of God's law? He says there is a sad desperation that lies behind Psalm 11, 2 
and 3. Only faith in the promises of God can counter this, and it does. End quote. That's the temptation. David's crisis really wasn't the enemy. His crisis was the temptation coming from his friends and advisors to flee instead of remain faithful. And these well-intentioned friends and advisors may tell him to flee, but look at the text. David believes that there is another choice, that there is another decision that can be made. There's another way to respond to the crisis. And in the midst of the crisis, with the potential loss of his life at the hands of his enemies, David remained confident in Yahweh. And look at how he begins the psalm. He begins it with a declaration of faith. And he says, in the Lord, in the Lord I take refuge. The phrase take refuge means to turn aside or away from something to seek shelter or protection. And the use of the language in the text surrounding this phrase take refuge stresses that the psalmist has continued to take refuge in the Lord throughout his life. It could literally be translated this way. David has taken refuge in the past. David is taking refuge in the present. And David will take refuge in the future in the Lord. It's important to see what's happening here, friends. In the midst of his crisis, David did not look to himself and to his own wisdom and his own resources, nor did he look to others for safety and security. David placed his life, David placed his safety, David placed his security completely and exclusively in the Lord as his refuge. And with this bold declaration, David reminds us that we do not flee like a bird to the mountain. We flee to the Lord who is a certain and safe refuge. He is our place of safety no matter what is going on in our life or around our life. The Lord is the refuge for his people even when society is turned upside down on its head. And after making his declaration of faith, look at what he does. He responds in amazement to the counsel of his friends and advisors at the end of verse 1. Do you see it? How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? Translation, I thought you were my friends. I thought you were my advisors. What kind of foolish counsel are you trying to get my soul to believe? How could you even suggest such a response as this? The foundations of society may be destroyed, but my foundation is still intact because it's the Lord. And what David said to his advisors is what you and I need to say to ourselves today. I love how Spurgeon frames David's response to his advisors. It's helpful for all of us. This is what he said. As the children of Israel spoiled the Egyptians and made themselves rich from the spoils of their oppressors, 
both when they left Egypt and after the passage of the Red Sea. So let us gather riches of comfort and arms for future warfare from this text that threatens to enthrall the minds of Christians and hold them in the chains of fear and doubt. Did you catch what he said? My translation. Christian. Pay attention to Psalm 11 and what it's teaching you and how David responded to the crumbling foundations and put it in your war chest for future use. Make a deposit in your soul because one day you're going to need to pull the riches of Psalm 11 back up in your life. My translation of him. He goes on. God has laid in Zion certain spiritual foundations that can never be removed against which the gates of hell cannot prevail. Time cannot shake, and eternity will only confirm. The spiritual foundations cannot be removed, but the temporal foundations can be. The foundations of civil government, the foundations of commerce, the foundations of one's estates, the foundations of trust between man and man, these may be removed. War may arise. What can the righteous do? We can say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. If the ship is wrecked, our treasure is not aboard it. We know that if the banks should break, we will only part with some of our spending money. But our true treasure is up there, not in an iron chest where the burglar can break through. The righteous must not do as the unbeliever does, who puts his hand to his fevered brow and says, I am a ruined man. The righteous one cannot be a ruined man. We must not say, I have lost everything. We cannot lose everything. Christ is our all, and Christ cannot be lost. Just accept the blow, kiss the rod, touch the hand it smites, and say, blessed be you, my father, end quote. And he's right. He's right. It's a choice between fear and faith. It's a choice between fleeing away or fleeing to the Lord. And it's a temptation that every single one of us faces every day of our lives. And friends, if you're asleep, it's a temptation that you're going to face in an even greater way in the future. And so I ask you this morning, when faced with the crisis of crumbling foundations, will you flee in fear or will you stand firm in faith? Will you remain silent when teachers and administrators and school boards try to corrupt and steal the hearts and the souls and the minds of your children? Will you retreat and live an isolated life and lose your witness? Will you accommodate the demands of culture? Or will you refuse to refer to a man as a woman and a woman as a man? Will you stand church alongside of your pastors as they defend the faith and proclaim the truth, even if it means that they're arrested and put in jail? Or will you flee from them saying, I always thought that they were too bold and needed to settle down? Will you still gather with your brothers and sisters in Christ when it is dangerous to do so or when you are forbidden to do so? Will you trade being a culture warrior for being a kingdom warrior? What can the righteous do when the foundations are destroyed? 
Well, in many ways, as in the time of the prophet Jeremiah, we are living in the 21st century in exile. And Jeremiah defines what faithfulness looks like in the life of a Christian when the foundations are being destroyed. And in Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 7, this is what Jeremiah says that the people of God are to do when they're living in Babylon and the foundations are being destroyed. It's actually a very helpful text. This is what he says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's the council. You listening? Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. I'm sure he doesn't mean broccoli. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. He answers the question that Psalm 11 asks. When the foundations are destroyed, what should the righteous do? And in case you missed it, I'll give you the answer this morning. You remain a faithful presence in the culture. You stand firm in your faith. You rebuild the foundation and you pass it on to the generations that are behind you. You keep pursuing righteousness. You remain salt and light in the darkness of the world. You stand in opposition to the evils of society. You build houses. You plant gardens and eat their produce. You grow flowers. You get married. You raise a family. You be a responsible citizen. And you pray. That's what you do when the foundations are destroyed. But yet, there's the temptation to flee. When we not only see David's crisis, we also see David's confidence in verses 4 through 6. In the second half of this psalm, David focuses his eyes on God. And in these verses, he emphatically uses God's personal name, the Lord, all capitals in your Bible, four times. And he does it to emphasize where his courage and his confidence is coming from. It's coming from the Lord in whom he takes his refuge. And he highlights four characteristics about God that give him confidence. And I'm pulling these straight out of the text. Here's the first one. At the beginning of verse 4, he says, the Lord rules. He says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. And in this verse, David affirms God's sovereignty. He reminds his friends, his advisors, and us, and us, that this very moment, God is still on his throne, ruling and reigning over everything that is taking place in this world. He is reminding them and us that no matter what is happening on earth, God is in complete control. There is not a random molecule running around in this world that God is not sovereign over. 
And the language of verse 4 makes it clear that David is referring to God's temple and God's throne in heaven from which he looks down upon all of humanity. And he does this because he is reminding us that God's temple is a holy temple. It's a holy temple from which the moral standards by which everyone in this world will be judged emanate. And he reminds us that because God's throne is in heaven, it is a throne of supremacy and sovereign authority where he rules and reigns and renders just perfect judgment over everything that he has created. The prophet Habakkuk found great assurance in this picture of the heavenly temple in the throne in his day when the foundations of his society were crumbling. And this is what he prophesied about it in Habakkuk 2 and verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. Oh, that's a good word. Why are you wringing your hands this morning? Why are you in knots and can't sleep at night because of everything that is going on around you? Why are you doing that? Don't you know the Lord is in his temple? Don't you know he's seated on his throne? Look up and be quiet. That's what Habakkuk did. David didn't fix his gaze on the temporal human institutions that were shaking. He put his gaze on the permanent throne of the sovereign God of the universe who re whose reign, listen, whose reign can never be shaken. It can never be shaken. Dale Ralph Davis said it is here that David reveals the secret of steadfastness in his chaotic world. This will seem too simple. Everything depends on your vision. You can either look at the wicked or you can place your eyes on Yahweh. Despair is managed by keeping Yahweh himself at the center of your vision. Yahweh is in his holy temple. Yahweh's throne is in the heavens. And that is all that anchors you when the foundations turn to slime. That's it, friend. Where are you looking? <laughs> you, are you really looking to the White House for your safety and security? You need to look a little higher to the throne of heaven. He's reigning. He's ruling. And if you don't believe that this morning, I'm telling you, your God is too small. Number two, the end of verse four, he says, the Lord sees. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. David, in this verse, affirms God's omniscience. When he says his eyes see, he's speaking of God's gaze and God's scrutiny. And then look at the next phrase. It's a very interesting phrase. His eyelids test. It suggests that, Dave, that God's gaze never wavers. That David is picturing God with a narrow, focused look. As if he were looking at objects of great value. And he's never wavering in his attention. And David is showing us that God sees everything. That nothing can be hidden from God. 
And it's a stark contrast between verse 2 where the wicked say that they hide in the dark in the shadows thinking that they can hide their activities from God. And David says, "Um, excuse me, God sees everything that you do. He's marking it all down. His eyes are intense. His gaze never closes. He sees it all. That's why Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on both the evil and the good. Oh, he reigns. He sees. In verse 5, the Lord tests. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. In this verse, David emphasizes the fact that God uses the crisis of verses 1 through 3 to test the righteous. And the word for test that he uses here carries the idea of testing metals by fire, where the goldsmith will turn up the heat so high on gold and silver that it'll boil and all the impurities of the metals will rise to the surface and then the goldsmith will skim them all off so that what is left and remains is pure and precious. And David is saying that's what God does for the believer in the crisis, in the trials, in the tribulations of our lives. So if you're in a trial, if you're in a tribulation, if you're in a crisis this morning, God is using it to purify you and to make you more precious as one of his children and to demonstrate to the world that your faith is genuine and that his work in your life is good. That's how Peter described it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, You have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you understand that, friends? That as the foundations are crumbling around you this morning, God is using that to test you and to purify you and to grow you in your faith that he hasn't abandoned you that he's reigning and he sees everything that is taking place in your life and he's working it all for good in your life because he is a good and faithful God to his children oh if you could just understand that it would change how you view all the things that are happening around you now notice the contrast in verse 5 God tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked. He doesn't test the wicked. He sets his wrath upon the wicked and all of their evil because he hates violence and he hates evil. And judgment will come, which leads us to the fourth and final characteristic that David highlights of God in verse 6. The Lord judges. Now, look at this language. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. In this verse, David emphasizes God's severity, and he uses three images to describe the judgment that God has prepared for the wicked. First, he describes fire and sulfur descending on the wicked like the Lord sent on Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the exact same language that's found in the book of Genesis to describe their devastation. Next, David adds the picture of a scorching wind from the desert that would destroy the wicked. 
And do you know what he's saying with these first two pictures? The wicked and everything they do will eventually be burned completely up. It's the exact same thing that Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3. That God is going to burn up all of the evil in this world. That's why John saw a new heaven and a new earth for the former heaven and the former earth had passed away. He's going to bring his judgment. Finally, notice what the text says. David declares that a cup will be the portion of the wicked. Why a cup? Well, the cup is used in the Bible as a symbol for one's lot in life. It could be a cup of blessing, as Psalm 23, 5 describes, or it can be a cup of judgment and fury and terror as it is being used in this verse. God says through David that all of the wicked, all of the violence, all of the evil that is dismantling society will be experiencing his judgment through fire and through the cup of his unending wrath. When Spurgeon was thinking about this cup of wrath, he said, think of it, a cup of misery, but not one drop of mercy. O people of God, how foolish is it to fear the faces of men who shall soon be a bundle of sticks in the fire of hell. Think of their end, their fearful end, and all fear of them must be changed into contempt of their threatening and pity for their miserable state. That's the perspective, friends. They think they're winning, but they're really heaping up more and more judgment upon themselves. So I wonder this morning, what truth concerning God's character do you need to be reminded of today? That he's reigning, that he sees, that he's testing for your good, or that he'll judge. Or maybe you need to be reminded of all of them this morning. Are you looking up to the heavens in confidence, or are you looking around the earth in fear? These verses are meant to give you confidence in God. They're meant to give you courage through God. They're meant to put steel in your spine. We not only see David's crisis and David's confidence, finally in verse 7, we see David's comfort. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. David ends this psalm on a note of comfort and a note of encouragement. He reminds his friends and his advisors and us that the Lord is a righteous God. And that because he is a righteous God, he loves righteous deeds. And that's why he will judge the wicked and why he will judge every form of wickedness. And then David ends this psalm with a comforting picture of what awaits the upright, those who live for God, those who love for God, those who long for God. And look at what the text says. The text says that those who belong to God, those who love God, those who live for God, those who long for God, shall behold His face. What does that mean? 
Well, Christopher Ash says that to see God's face means to stand before him as an honored servant. That if you belong to God, one day you're going to stand before him face to face as one of his honored servants. Dane Ortland described it this way. It means we will become ourselves finally. It means dawn will rise on the dark gray of this fallen world. It means final rest will be ours. It means we will be with the one of whom even the best earthly friendships are only a faint glimpse and to whom the most sublime earthly joys are finally pointing. We will see his face. This is quite a contrast. Isn't it to God's response to Moses when Moses in the book of Exodus asked God to show him his glory? And in Exodus 33, 20, this is how God responded to Moses' question. He said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Now, if Moses couldn't see God's face, how can you and I see his face? It's actually quite simple. Because God's son, the Lord Jesus Christ, took the full cup of God's wrath for your sin and my sin and the sin of the whole world. When he died on the cross, he reconciled us through his death, his burial, and his resurrection to the God who created us. So that when we confess our sins, and turn from our sins in repentance and trust in Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross through his sacrificial death, we are reconciled to God and we can see his face. But if you're not reconciled to God through his son, you will not see his face in comfort and encouragement and communion as David is describing in verse 7. You will see his face in judgment. So how do you know if you'll see his face the way David is describing? Well, did you know that when the Bible describes our salvation in the New Testament, that it often uses present tense language, which means that these things should be characteristic of us in the moment, present realities in our life. In other words, I would say it to you this way. It means that we're not relying on some prayer that we prayed 20 years ago when we walked down in the front of a church and our life has never changed since that prayer. We're still doing the same things we've been doing for the last 20 years. We're still struggling with the same things. There's never been a change in our life, but we've prayed a prayer. Well, friends, praying a prayer doesn't mean that you've confessed your sin, turned from it, and trusted in Jesus. It just means you prayed a prayer. The trajectory of your life testifies to whether you've confessed your sin, turned from it, and trusted in Jesus as your Savior. And here's what I would say to you this morning. If you don't love God's Word, if you don't love the people of God, if you don't love the things of God, if you don't love righteousness and hate evil and wickedness, if you don't love to worship God, then what makes you think you're going to see his face? I have an even better question for you. If you don't love all those things, why would you want 
to see his face. For fire insurance? To keep you out of hell? Or because you want Jesus because of what he did for you? I'm saying this to you this morning to wake you up from your slumber. I guarantee you in a room this full that there are people in this room resting on a prayer, resting on walking an aisle, resting on they got their membership in a church somewhere, whatever it may be. They're resting in everything but Jesus to save them. And you know it's true because your life's never changed. But for those of us in this room who know Jesus and who've trusted in Jesus, do you hear these words? Do you hear the comfort and encouragement of these words? You will see his face. It's how we opened this service this morning in 1 John chapter 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. It's what Jesus said in John chapter 14 and verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Oh, friends, we need to remember in the days of darkness that what we love, what we believe in, and what we see by faith now, one day we will see face to face. We will behold his face in all of its glory. I was thinking about how I could make sure that we don't take this reality for granted and feel the encouragement and the comfort and the hope that it gives us. And here's the best thing that I could come up with. I believe it was the first time that we went to Nepal on a mission trip. And the trip was about 10 or 11 days. And it was the longest that I had ever been gone from my family. It was a long trip. It was an eventful trip. It felt like a long trip for the family, for me, for everybody, probably for our church family. And so I got home and we celebrated and then I was exhausted and went to bed. And the next morning, Molly got up early as she was known to do in those days. And she waddled into the bedroom and she always came to my side of the bed. Now, I couldn't figure that out. Always came to my side of the bed. And she came to my side of the bed, and she nudged on me, and I lifted her up, and I put her into bed. And then she got up real close to me, and she took both of her little hands, and she put them right here on my cheeks. And she just held on to them and just started squeezing and staring at me. And she stopped for a minute, and then she'd take her hands and put them back on my cheeks and squeeze and stare at me. She didn't say anything. She just stared. And it was as if she couldn't believe she was seeing my face. Oh, can't you see it? You're worn. You're tired. You're broken. You're fearful. But you're persevering. 
You're fighting. You're standing your ground. You're trying to be faithful. You're trying to be godly and holy. You're trying to love and serve Jesus more, and you just keep on going. And all around you, everything is falling apart. Everything is falling apart. And then one day, you either die and graduate to heaven, or Jesus Christ splits the sky, and he comes. And in that moment, it's as if you would take his hands and put them on your cheeks and stare at you. You're his child. And in that moment, He's seeing your face, and you're seeing the face of the one who died so you could live. That'll help you. That'll help you fight on to the end. What do you do, friend, when this world is falling apart? While David's friends and advisors looked around in fear and despair, David looked up in trust. Because when the foundations are destroyed, God is the firm foundation for his people. That's why when the foundations are destroyed, we need to remember that God is a refuge for his people. We need to remember that God is sovereign over everything that is happening in the world. We need to remember that he will always act according to his character. We need to remember that judgment is coming. And we need to remember that if we know Christ, we have the assurance that one day we will see his face. When the foundations are destroyed, what will you do? Let's pray.